The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Um, it's great to uh, be with you. And I just want to thank, I mean, specifically thank Bobby uh, in person as well as the rest of this church for investing in me and my family's life over the years. Uh, growing up in a broken home, uh, there were a lot of men through this body that invested in me. Uh, and uh, Bobby is just a few years older than me, but was a mentor growing up. And so he's not just a singer. I don't know if you knew that, but he also invests in people's lives and was a great encourager to me growing up, helped me to grow up in Christ. Um, I just want to encourage you to pray for us. We've been there for six and a half years, but in Colleen, in six and a half years, uh, that means a new church every two years uh, with the turnover there, with the way the population works. So continue to pray for us. So at many levels, we're mature. I like to joke with people that we're like an adolescent church. We have the appearance of maturity, right? We look grown up, but we're really not yet. You know, we need some wisdom. We need some maturity. And I would just appeal to you also, if God is laying on your heart, uh, the desire for mission, uh, that we have a mission field just 20 miles away, that if you are Uh, older than 30 and you've read Proverbs, you would make a great mentor at our church. So uh, if you if you fill those qualifications, please come and see me after the service and we've got a job for you. Um, Also, I just, you know, I I can't help it because I'm not used to preaching to a room this big. So I brought a bucket. I know y'all don't normally pass a plate, but I thought maybe we could take a quick offering. Is there someone that could could pass? I'm joking. Y'all thought I was serious, right? Okay. (laughs) That was a joke. I didn't, that didn't work very well. So maybe I should take the offering. But the executive pastor is looking at me, so I better not. Um, if you will open your Bibles, if you have one, to Ephesians. We're going to look at Ephesians 1, verses 11 through 14 today. We're going to look at Ephesians. At, at our church, we've been going through this series called A New Identity. We have that on the screen. Uh, a New Identity. And the concept is that uh, we are all tempted to take our identity, our identity and to define ourselves by whatever is right up in our face, right? Whatever circumstances you're, you're facing right now, whatever things you're struggling with right now, whatever difficulties, it may be sickness, it may be conflicting relationships, it, uh, it may just be sadness, right? It may be some kind of habitual sin that you continue to fall into. And so the temptation is to say, that's who I am. Right? To, to define yourself by that. Say, this is who I am. This pain or this struggle or whatever it may be. Um, the temptation can even be on the other side. If, if you may seem to have your life together, the temptation may be to define yourself by your success. To say, this is who I am. I've, I've achieved all these great things in my life. God must be pleased with me. Well, what the scriptures tell us again and again is that we should take our identity from God and from what God is doing in the world, what God has accomplished. He should be the source of our identity and the way that we define ourselves. And that's so important. The little section that I want us to look at today is specifically showing us that the Holy Spirit marks us if we trust in Jesus and that we are owned and we are secure. And so we can always rest in his ownership and his love for us through the work of the Holy Spirit, through the marking of the Holy Spirit. So if you'll read with me, I'm going to read verses 11 through 14 in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1, starting in verse 11. It says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, 
having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Let me pray for us and ask him to teach us this this morning. God, we pray that you would teach us. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be here with us and open up the text so that we would just fully rest in the reality that you are our good and loving God. You're the one that adopts us. You're the one that marks us. You're the one that makes us your own. Help us to rest in that and not to be shaky in all the other changing circumstances in our life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you here have a dog? Anybody here have a dog? So so a lot of you, all right. Pretty common thing, right? A lot of us have dogs. We have dogs, had dogs growing up. And sometimes when you lose your dog, you can be really heartbroken about that, right? You're worried about your dog. You don't know where they are. You're afraid maybe they got hit by a car or something bad has happened to them. I remember losing a dog one time. And when we finally found her, her her paws were all worn down from running. And, you know, she was in bad shape because she'd kind of broken out of the fence and uh, had been afraid and we were worried about her. I remember another time growing up that some friends had a dog that got lost and they, they looked at all the normal spots. You know, there were places before that she'd run away to. They went and checked there. They couldn't find her. Uh, they went to the shelter in town. They still couldn't find their dog and they were starting to feel like, you know, she was just gone, that they had lost her. She had wandered too far. Well, after a couple of weeks, they got a call from the shelter in Waco, Texas, and and these were temple people. Waco's 30 miles away, and they said that they had found her dog, and they were amazed. I mean, that's a long way for a dog to wander. She didn't drive there. She she ran there, right? And, And she had wandered far from home, but they were so glad to have her back, and the reason they were able to get her back is because she had the tag, right? I mean, she had the mark of possession that said that this dog belongs to them. And we have a similar phrase, we have a similar concept here in verse 13 of Ephesians that says we are tagged, we are marked, we belong to God. It says we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. This word seal talks about something that would happen in the first century when a king would have a a ring with some kind of engraving on it or he might have a pendant And when he had an important document or something was happening that he wanted to show ownership of, he would impress the wax with his seal. So it was sealed and everyone knew it belonged to him. And so what what Paul is telling us in Ephesians is that we are sealed. We are marked. We belong to God. And there are going to be circumstances in our life that are going to shake that feeling. There are going to be circumstances in your life. There are circumstances in my life. Not just once a long time ago, but regularly. That cause us to question that. That say, God, what are you doing? What is going on? And we have to remember that we belong to him. We're sealed. We're marked by his Holy Spirit. We're tagged as his possession. And so as we move through the text, the the first thing that I want us to, to note here is that it's all for God's glory. It's about what he is doing in the world. And I apologize for the robot font. I don't know, something happened when I sent this through. and It was like really distracting me this morning, but I'm going to try to work through it. Okay, the Spirit, the Spirit marks us for God's glory. 
The Spirit marks us for God's glory. Now, th- this is interesting because you're going to hear this with, in two different ways, depending on who you are or where you're at this morning. Uh, if you are a uh, Christian that's been taught, you're probably going to hear this through the grid of orthodoxy, right? Of right belief, you're going to hear, yeah, God's glory, that's what it's all about, that's my purpose in life. If you're not so sure about God this morning, you're going to think, well, that's selfish, right? I mean, that's, that's not very encouraging, that's maybe a little scary, I don't know about God, why, why do I want my life to be about him, I want my life to be about me, right? And we, we may struggle with that. Even if you know, according to orthodoxy, that we should be about God's glory, you still may wonder if that's really what you want in your life, right? I mean, if you're honest, um, maybe not, I don't know. I'll be honest and say, sometimes I wonder. If I want my life to be all about God, maybe I want my life to be about me, and I'm not so sure, and I, I struggle with us. I want you to see in the text here that the way Ephesians describes this is God is doing these big incredible, scary, colossal, universe-sized things, and yet it's still something we can rest in. It's something that's good for us. God's glory is good for us. It should bring us peace. It should give us this feeling like everything's going to be okay. Even though everything seems to be turned upside down, things are going to be all right because God is working things out according to his glory. Let's look at the text again. Verse 11 says, In him we have obtained an inheritance. Uh, it's translated differently in almost every translation, so I'm going to come back to that in a second. But then it says, hard word here, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that, and then here's the summary phrase I'm using, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Like our, our hope in Christ, our existence as belonging to him is all about his glory. It's all for the praise of his glory. And the connecting phrase he uses there in verse 11, the end of verse 11, is having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. These are big words. And again, these are hard words that traditionally Christians debate, that we're not sure exactly what this means. They, they scare us, frankly, sometimes, because we feel like sometimes that this is about a God that just kind of does his own thing. It sounds like maybe it's arbitrary. It sounds perhaps flippant that God just does what he wants. Well, where does that leave me? If God just is going to operate according to his will, what, what about me? What rest is there in that for me? What does that really mean? Uh, I would say a simple definition of predestination is that before time, God says, I'm going to save people, and he saves us, right? That's a simple definition. There's probably a lot of other ways we could debate that. There's a lot of other ways we could talk about that. I'll leave that up to Pastor Gary. He can come back next week and answer any questions that you have about predestination. But in all seriousness, I want want you to see the rest of what this verse says. The, The problems don't go away. You skip predestination, we still got problems. Look at the next phrase. According to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God works all things according to the counsel of his will. And many of us are not in a place yet in our life where we can say, like Joseph, you meant this for evil, but God meant this for good. We're not sure yet. But this verse is telling us that there's hope that we can get to that place where we can see that this God that works all things according to the counsel of his will, that that will can be good. That could be a good thing. That could be a thing for us to rest in. It says he works all things according to the counsel of his will. Verse 12, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And so there's this idea that this bigness of God, these 
unbelievable, hard to understand, incomprehensible concepts of predestination and a God who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that those things would actually help us to praise God. They're not for us to argue. They're not for us to fight. They're not for us to have a philosophical confusion over. They're for us to praise God and glorify him and think God is great. God is awesome. I want to show you something in verse 11, which I think will help us to get there. Again, I think this is a process of the Holy Spirit working in our life, but I also think there's things in the text that are helpful. There's things that we see the way that it's sandwiched in the text. Uh, These ideas of God working all things out are always sandwiched in his love for us, his heart for us. Look at verse 11 again. Now, in the ESV that I'm reading, it says, in him we have obtained an inheritance. I believe the New American Standard says something very similar to that. I know probably we all have a lot of different Bible translations, and a lot of us don't have Bibles at all, so that's all right. Um, but it says, in him we've obtained an inheritance. And that ties in with verse 14 that says we're looking forward to our future inheritance. So that idea is a biblical idea, the idea that we are inheriting an awesome future, Right? We are spiritually speaking millionaires and we're looking forward to a new heavens and a new earth where there's no more crying, no more pain, where all things are made right. That's our inheritance. That's what we look forward to. Biblically true, an idea that is found in many other places in scripture. What I want to show you here is that Paul is saying that in verse 14, but in verse 11, I think his primary meaning is something else. Okay, I think in verse 11 it has a double meaning because in the Greek it's, it's a, a tense that can be read as either um, middle or passive. Okay, so you know how like with grammar you have active and passive. Active is uh, I kicked the ball and passive would be I was kicked by the ball, which doesn't make sense, but you know what I'm saying, right? Okay, so you got active and passive. Well, in Greek you have this other thing called middle which causes some, some interesting translations sometimes. And so this looks like it could, it looks exactly the same, either middle or passive. So translators translate it one or the other. So in the Greek, if you read it, you would just pick up that it has both meanings, right? That it could be middle or it could be passive. But we're not Greek, right? So our, our translators have to just kind of go with the translation for us. But I would say the primary meaning here is the, the passive. So it, it should be, verse 11, in him we have been obtained as an inheritance, The primary meaning, I believe, in verse 11 is we've been obtained as an inheritance. And the reason I would make this case is that that's all over the Old Testament. It is repeated again and again that God's people are his inheritance. And I think when we see that, that gives us that context to see that this big God who is sovereign over all things, who's working all things out according to the counsel of his will, loves us. And he sees us as his inheritance as his reward, as his treasured possession. I just want to read real quickly through some verses in the Old Testament. If you're a note taker, I'll tell you where they're found, but I wouldn't try to flip there because I'm going to try to go through these quickly. Uh, Just where they are is Deuteronomy 7, Deuteronomy 4, Deuteronomy 9, and Isaiah 40. All right, Deuteronomy 7, 4, 9, and then Isaiah 40. I just want to read these so you, you hear this echo that we get in the Old Testament of we are God's inheritance. We still have a future inheritance we call heaven, right? That's still true, but, but also we need to see in the text, we're God's inheritance. It says in Deuteronomy 7, the Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other people's. For you were the fewest. So he didn't choose you because you were so impressive and so awesome. You were actually the puniest. You're the fewest. He chose you because he loves you. Because he wants to make you his treasure. 
He says in verse uh, in Deuteronomy 4, but the Lord has taken you out and brought you out of the iron furnace out of Egypt. He's referring to their slavery in Egypt as the iron furnace. And he says he brought you out to be a people of his own inheritance as you are to this day. You're his inheritance. He says in Deuteronomy 9, for they are your people. This is now in Deuteronomy 9. This is Moses appealing to God's mercy. So he's saying, God, they are your people. They're your people and your heritage or inheritance, whom you brought out by your great power and by your outstretched arm. So Moses appealing to God's mercy, saying, God, they're your people. You love them. They're your treasured possession. They're your inheritance. Isaiah 40 says it really beautifully. Isaiah 40 says, behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. So this is the big God. This is the sovereign God. Says he comes with might. His arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him. His reward is with him and his recompense before him. Another word for reward or payment, recompense. So, so what is his reward? What is his recompense? It says in Isaiah 40, 11, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will gather them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. So that's that, again, combination of images we have in the scripture. He is huge. He's big. He's the mighty warrior. He's the one that, that conquers evil. That, that laughs at the nations and he gathers his people in his arms as a shepherd. And we are his reward. We are the one that he loves. We, we are his treasured possession. So I want you to see that, that the bigness, that the glory, that the awesome, great power of God is always sandwiched in his love for us. That we are his that he delights in us. If, if you looked back at the beginning part of Ephesians, you would say he's an adopting God. He is this father that loves us. He is this son that dies for us. He's the spirit that marks us, that owns us. We belong to him. And it's so important that we see that. It's so important that as Christians, we balance these two views of God, that we understand that God is both big and God is gracious. We always have to hear both. We always have to see both in the text. Because both work together, and if we just hobby horse on one or the other, it's going to twist us in our view of God. But we have to hold the two together. He is big. He's bigger than anything. He's scary. He's so big. But he's gracious, and he loves us. We are his. He, he owns us. We belong to him. Jesus uses this great uh, metaphor for this when he's talking about the Holy Spirit, when he's, he's teaching Nicodemus. So Nicodemus was like the head teacher of the Pharisees, of the teachers in, in Jesus' day, of the Israelites. And you know this famous interaction that Jesus has with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, where he talks about how you have to be born again. Well, Jesus uses this imagery that that kind of echoes the same idea that God works all things out according to the counsel of his will. But that counsel, that will, that bigness is about saving people. It's about loving people. So Jesus brings those two things together too. I have a a picture here to remind us of what Jesus said there of, of wind chimes. Any of you have wind chimes? Some of you? Okay, I have wind chimes. I love wind chimes. When we go into a store where there's a bunch of wind chimes, I love to just go ring all of the wind chimes. And my wife doesn't like that when I do that in the store, but uh, she's very patient with me. So um, when you see the wind chimes or when you hear the wind chimes moving or see them moving, you know the wind is blowing, right? Jesus says that the spirit is like that. The spirit blows and you can't really predict the wind. just like you can't really predict the spirit. It, it does what it wants. In John 3, he says it this way. Truly, I say, unless one is born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. You have to be born again. 
The Spirit has to blow into your life. You have to be spiritually transformed. You can't see the kingdom of God without the Spirit blowing in. And then Jesus goes on and says, Don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. He says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. Now, wind and spirit in Greek are the same words. We have to, we have to understand that to really get what he's saying. He's, he's got to play on words here. So basically, Jesus is saying the spirit blows where it wants to, just as the wind blows where it wants to. It, it does what it wants. He does what he wants. God does what he wants. And again, unless we understand that he's a saving God, that he's a loving God, that he's a gracious God, that's a terrifying idea. I don't know about you, but I can't rest in a God that just does whatever he wants unless I know that he's a God that saves, unless I know that he's a God that forgives sin, unless I know that he's a God that's, a, that's adopting a people as a father, gathering them in his arms. He, he's a God who became man and died for us, gave his life for us, spilled his blood for us. When we understand that, then, then it's not arbitrary, then it's not flippant that the wind blows where it wills, that God works all things out according to the counsel of his will. And it's sweet and it's something we can rest in that God is about his glory. God is doing what God will do and our life and our rest and our sweetness and all good things in life are, are in that, are, are found in that. We, we have hope in that. You, you know, of course, the famous verse in John 3.16, Jesus goes on talking about the spirit does whatever it wants to. And he says, you know what? If we just believe, if we just trust we won't perish. God so loves the world that he gave his son. God so loves us that he gave Jesus. And that's, in the end, that's the proof that God's not flippant, that God just is not scary. He's scary, but he's also gracious. And so we can rest in that reality. I think there's two applications of, of this that I, that I think is important for us to uh, think about in our own life. Um, actually, one application, really. It just comes down to one thing. I think we should pray. I think if we understand that the Spirit marks us for God's glory, then that's going to produce in us a praying life. And what I think we need to think about are the two sides of of God's glory. That God is both absolutely sovereign, that he's in control of all things. So he's the kind of person we could ask to fix something, right? Because he could fix anything. We also need to understand that he's gracious, that he loves us. When we hold those two things together, we're going to pray. We're going to talk to him about our problems. We're going to talk to him about the world's problems. We're going to intercede for other people, and we're going to trust that he loves us. See, in my own life, I don't pray as, as often as I want or as I wish. And when I'm not praying, I recognize that sometimes it's because I think I'm in control, right? Sometimes I think I can solve problems in life. Sometimes I think I can get things done. I'm smart enough, or I have the right resources, or I could figure it out. I could, I could accomplish what needs to be accomplished. So I'm not really thinking of God as being the one in control of all things, the one who works all things out according to the counsel of his will. And so I don't pray because I don't see God as the, the big God in control of all things. You know, sometimes, though, I recognize that. I still don't pray because I don't think God cares. Sometimes I recognize he's God. Sometimes I recognize he's big. Sometimes I think of him as the one that can fix all things. But I don't pray because I don't really know that he cares about me. And what I want you to see here in the text, here in the scriptures, is Christianity uniquely proclaims a God who is both bigger than anything and a God who is closer than anyone. He's both working all things out according to the counsel of his will for his glory. And he, he loves us. And he's working out things in our life 
so that we will praise his glory. So we'll be excited about who he is and what he's doing. When we realize that, then we'll pray. We'll talk to him. We'll bring our issues to him. We'll bring our stuff to him. We'll talk about big things in the world that only he can change, and we'll bring those to his feet, and we'll be a praying people. The next thing I want us to see is that the Spirit marks us through trust in Jesus. I use the word trust. I think, I think it's a better word personally as I interact with people because I think when we use the word believe, which is what uh, the most translations use here, when we use the word believe, sometimes we think of that as kind of an abstract term. Like, I don't know, maybe not for you, but for me, belief tends to be more along the line of think, uh, mental assent, right? Checking a box on a true-false quiz. But I think when we hear the word trust, we can put it more in this concept of our posture before God. Do you trust God? Do you trust that he loves you? Do you trust that he's good? Do you trust that he's both in control of all things and that he's gracious and he's kind? And I would challenge you this morning that if you don't trust God, if really in the back of your mind you think he's got it in for me, you don't really know God. And I don't say that to push you away from him. I say that to invite you in. I say that to invite you into a relationship of trust with him. To be, his, to be a Christian is to be someone who has a posture of trust before God. God is good. I love him because I know that he loves me and he gave himself for me on the cross. I want to show you this in the text. In verse 13, it says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, so the proclamation of good news that you've got salvation in him and believed in him, were sealed with the Holy Spirit. So it says, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him or trusted in him, trusted in him, believed in him, you're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So what it's saying here is that at the, at the moment of trust, at the moment of belief, at that posture of I, I trust that he's good, I trust that he's given himself for me, I trust that there's something wrong with me, I need salvation, and I trust that the salvation is found in the good news of who Jesus is, what he's accomplished, you know, what it says in other places and just previous verses, it says that we have redemption through the blood of Jesus, that he died for us. Like our sin was put on him. He took the punishment for our sin and his perfection was given to us. He's the, he's the new Adam that lived perfectly as all of us should have lived. That righteousness is, is imputed to us, is given to us by faith. At that moment, we're given the Holy Spirit. Now, I, I know some of you may have had uh, varying experiences and understanding of what the Holy Spirit looks like in a Christian's life. When you look at the book of Acts, you see some, some kind of, frankly, bizarre things that happen in people's lives as a result of the Holy Spirit, right? In Acts, you see kind of amazing miracles. You see people speaking in foreign tongues. You see kind of really amazing manifestations of the Spirit. And there are some Christians today that would say that if you haven't had that, that kind of bizarre spectrum uh, experience, you don't have the Holy Spirit. And I don't want to say that those things don't happen. I have friends that would testify to that. It's not a part of my everyday experience, but I would say God can do whatever he wants to. We just saw the spirit blows where the spirit wants to, right? We have to be in subjection to him. He does what he wants to do. But it's not a part of my everyday experience. And this verse here says that I have the spirit at the moment that I trust and believe in Jesus. And that's so important for us to understand. We, we get the spirit through trust in Jesus. When you trusted, the Spirit marked you. The Spirit sealed you. The Spirit filled you. 
I think it's important that we understand this, and I think it's important as we think about the idea of trust and think about that moment or the ongoing work of trusting God, that one of the reasons it's hard for us to recognize or, or live in trust is because we don't really recognize the problem, right? So it was saying that in, in that gospel, it's a gospel of salvation, right? It's a gospel of something's wrong with us, we need to be fixed. Something's wrong with us, we need to be saved. And so a lot of us don't hear that because we don't really think there's a problem. There's a flood a few years back in, in uh, Colleen. I think there was flooding here as well. But I had a, a friend that actually physically went out in a canoe and rescued people. This poor woman lost a child in the flood and had other kids up on top of the car. And he, he literally rescued them. And when you're in that kind of danger, you recognize your need for rescue, right? I have a picture of a rescue helicopter here. Uh, if, if you were in some terrible position, you were hanging onto a tree and a rescue helicopter came by, you would say, yeah, I recognize I need to be saved. There's something wrong. My situation is desperate. I want the rescue. I trust in this helicopter that showed up out of nowhere, right? If you were, if you were walking into Starbucks to get a cup of coffee and a rescue helicopter comes down in the parking lot, you're probably going to wonder what is going on, Right? And, and that's how, as Americans, often we hear this gospel of salvation. Often we hear about this desperate plight. We hear about this problem that we have. We hear about this rescue, this salvation that's coming through Jesus, through the gospel. And we're thinking, I'm fine. I'm just getting a cup of coffee. I just want to read my newspaper, right? Can you, can you leave me alone, crazy, weird, religious person, right? Can, can you get out of my face? I want us to recognize that as Americans, and it could be argued that our economy's not doing as well as it has been, Right? That, that could be stated as a fact. But we're still the richest people in the world. We're still the richest people in the world. And, and Jesus makes it very clear that it's harder for a rich man to enter heaven than for a, a camel to go through the eye of a needle. That translates to impossible, right? If you don't recognize how not rich you are, if you think you've got your stuff together, it's going to be impossible for you to see the rescue that he offers. And so just a little test for you. Do you, do you love everybody all the time the way that you know that you should? Do you make every decision the way that you wish that you would? Are you always honoring people perfectly? Are you always as brave and as beautiful and as perfect as you know you could be? And if not, then, then you are a part of that everyone that the scripture talks about in Romans 3. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Not just, not just non-religious people, not just people caught in addiction, not just the people that are in bad habits and know they're bottoming out, but the religious people too. Those of us that uh, have kind of started to get uh, up on our feet and kind of st- starting to get our life together, we still, we still fall short of the glory of God. We still need rescue. We're still sinners. We still have a heart problem where we don't want to love people as well as we should. And we need the rescue that only Jesus can provide. When we recognize that, when we trust in that, we're marked with the Holy Spirit. The last thing I want us to look at is how the Holy Spirit marks us to guarantee our future. The Spirit marks us to guarantee our future. So it says at the end of verse 13, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, right? And then verse 14, it says, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory? Again, returning back to the theme of it's about God's glory. So the Spirit is the guarantee. The Holy Spirit himself coming inside us, we get the Spirit As we trust in Jesus, as we trust in God, we get the Holy Spirit, and he is our guarantee. Have you ever uh, bought something and then it it just broke real quickly and you wished 
that you had some kind of guarantee. Has, has that ever happened to you, anybody out here today? Maybe. Um, you bought a product. Maybe you had a product break, and then you're buying something else, and they, they try to get you to buy that extended service contract, and you're thinking, well, that, that seemed like it wasn't a good idea before, but now this thing just broke, so now I'm going to buy one, right? Now I want the guarantee. Well, what the Scripture says is that the Spirit is that guarantee, he, he marks us. He shows us that we can trust God. And he assures us when things get rough that we can still trust God, that things are going to be okay. I, I lived in an older home when I lived here in Temple. And we were remodeling this, this older home, 80-year-old home. I don't, I don't recommend it, by the way. I don't recommend doing that. But this is what, this, where God had us for some reason. And we were trying to fix this up. And we always just wanted it to just instantly be fixed, Right? And we would, we would hire people to help us, and sometimes those people would do a great job and things would happen quickly. Other times it wouldn't go so well. So you learn, as you're hiring people to help you, you learn that, you know what, I want to see some of their finished work so that I can have a sense, a guarantee, an assurance that they're going to finish the job for me. And so what we see here in the scripture is that we have a God who saved us, who's done this miracle in our life of changing us from a position of not trusting God like Adam and Eve to now, miraculously, we actually trust God. We actually trust him. So that same God that's done that work, then we see that as an assurance that he'll finish the work that he started. Right in Philippians, Paul says, you know, I know that the same God that has begun this work of salvation is going to see it on to completion. So we have this assurance he's going to complete the work. I have a picture here of someone uh, someone doing work. This is just a random picture I found of, you know, old boards and sawdust, a work project. You know, when you're, when you're remodeling something in your home, you have this vision of what it will look like to be complete, of, of com- completion and wholeness. But this is often the reality you have to live with in order to get there, right? Many of us feel like this is where we live. I think biblically, the scripture would say, this is the world we live in. The world we live in now is not the completion. It's not the new heavens, new earth. It's not the all things made right. It's, it's not the no more crying, no more pain. We, we live with the, the trash and the dust and the boards strewn all over the place. That's where we live now. And so we need that assurance from the Holy Spirit that I will finish the job. I am fixing this. We need to be reminded by his Holy Spirit that he gives us, that marks us, that tells us I saved you. I've forgiven your sins, and I'm going to finish the work. So I don't know about you. If you're like me, you, you can be frustrated with the, the sin around, with the injustice that you see out there, horrible things you see in the world, people being unkind, people hurting you, people uh, robbing you, people uh, having conflict with you. You can, you can just be so frustrated and weighed down by, that, by, the, by, by the sawdust and the boards in your life. And the encouragement we have from Scripture is that he's going to finish it. He's going to complete the work. Trust him. He's going to finish the work that he started. And I think another thing that's important to to point out is that the the sawdust and the broken boards that we see, they're not always just out there, right? It's not always just the bad people around us, but it's us. I mean, really, if we're honest, really what we want him to finish is us because we don't trust him as much as we can. We don't always make the decisions we should make. And so we're longing for God to finish what he started in our life. And what we're told here, our new identity is being adopted and loved by God. He gives us this down payment of the Holy Spirit that lives in us and reminds us that God's going to finish what he started. 
I want to finish just by reading from Romans 8. Romans 8 is a place that kind of fleshes this out for us. It makes more clear what is just said in a couple of verses here. Romans 8 says in a larger section in Romans 8.15. It reminds us that this Holy Spirit is in us and is going to finish the work. It says in Romans 8.15, You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, right? We have this inheritance, heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. If you're like me, you take great comfort in that promise. The Spirit tells us in our heart, we are, we're children, we're adopted. I still don't have a relationship with my earthly father, but I have a relationship with my heavenly father. He, he loves me. He's adopted me. And the Spirit reminds me of that. When all things seem like they're all falling apart, the Spirit reminds me I'm His. I'm marked. I belong to Him. And we love this and it encourages us. We are heirs. We have this inheritance with Christ. And then He throws in this thing in verse 17 that kind of messes it up, really. Did you see that in verse 17? The end of 17, He says, adds this phrase that I always want to cut off. I have to admit, even when I've read this for like a scripture reading in church, I've not read the end of it sometimes. It says, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We want, we want the adoption. We want the being sealed. We want to be filled. We want to know that he loves us. We want to be reminded of all these things. But we'd rather not suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. But Paul says in Romans 8, 18, But I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So I just want to remind you again, I know, I know you're probably in the middle of stuff that you never thought you would go through. You're probably going through things that are worse than you ever imagined. And in the middle of that, in the middle of life just kind of unraveling and living with the boards and the sawdust and the trash of life, I want you to hear that he says that these present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed in us as his sons, as his children. He goes on in Romans 8 to say that that Holy Spirit that reminds us of this truth even prays for us. You may be in a point in your life where you don't even know how to pray. Like, I don't even want to pray. The Holy Spirit intercedes on our behalf, it says in Romans 8. I don't know the right words to say. I don't know how to approach God. The Holy Spirit intercedes for you. Trust him. Bring your stuff to him. Bring your heartache to him and rest in his love for you. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you are so much bigger than our immediate circumstances. And I pray that you would help us to rest in our new identity as your children. Help us not to, in in pride, get our identity out of our successes and help us not to go to despair where we take our identity from voices of shame or pain or difficulty that we may be struggling with right now. Help us to remember that you are with us, that you've marked us, that you own us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.